Hello, church. <laughs> I threw my back <clears throat> yesterday, and I was sitting in my bed looking at my ceiling fan pretty much the whole day and the evening. Um, and I called the church and made alternative arrangements uh, for the worship service today and sermon and everything. But then today morning I realized that it is Pentecost Sunday. And it is so antithetical for me to just sit there and I can't even sit there. But I was going to come today and I'm here against my doctor's order. Uh, and the awkward thing about it is that the doctor is sitting right there. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> But if, if it will make you feel better, I was in the triage center. There is a therapy room. Did you know that we have a therapy room right across? Some people call it prayer room, uh, but, but it is a therapy room. It's, that's what they do. They handle complicated cases that the doctors can't really handle. So, so here is the walking, standing proof, okay? So... <laughs> So we are starting a new series today called The Beatitudes, and I'm pretty sure you know what that means. It comes from a Latin word, beatitudo, which means the state of blessedness, being in blessings. And it is essentially eight pronouncements of blessings that Jesus uttered from his own mouth in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you ask me, I believe these eight pronouncements of blessing or the Beatitudes are probably one of the most beautiful, beautiful uh, scripture you can hear, actually. So I thought, I don't want to mess it up by my reading. And I know I'm not, you know, I mean, you, you, you're being nice to me, but you understand that my diction, my diction is not that proper. So I have a friend, his name is Michael James Lasser. He is a professional actor. You can go and check his IMDb profile. He has in many shows, which I have, I, I watch and I love. And I, one thing I envy about him and generally actors is that they have such good voice. You know, the preachers can be jealous too. And, and as a preacher, I'm jealous of people with good voice and who can articulate it with just a, just a sound, the right tone, right? So I asked Michael to come here today. Even though I'm going to preach only the first two verses, I wanted him to do the whole beatitude for all of us. Michael, would you come and read it for us? Okay. I have a lot to follow after that. <laughs> Let me bring my voice a little lower. Here we go. <laughs> okay. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Sermon on the Mount is often called the New Testament Code of Ethics because we don't use the word law connected to the New Testament. The Old Testament is considered the law and the New Testament uh, essentially gives you a code of ethics as opposed to a series of law. And it is interesting that the law of the Old Testament was revealed on a mountaintop. You remember, right, the Mount Zion where uh, Moses went to speak with God and the law was directly revealed to Moses, which, you know, starting from Ten Commandments, it became the law, Torah. But in the New Testament, it is interesting that code of ethics or the New Testament law, for the lack of better words, is also coming from a mountain. And when Jesus uttered these verses, and we don't really know which was this mountain, there are different speculations. If you have been to Holy Land tour, I've never been to Holy Land, but if you go to Holy Land tour, they will show some hilltop and say that was the Sermon on the Mount, but nobody really knows. Depending on the tour guide, you make your assumptions, right? Uh, but it doesn't really matter. The point though, there is a misconception often about the scene of the Sermon on the Mount. Because whenever I see it pictured in my mind and it's in a movie or in a, in a painting, you can see like a big mountain and on top of the mountain Jesus sits and there's a crowd, a multitude of people, you know, sitting all around the mountain up to the valley and they are listening to Jesus. That's a, that's a depiction and you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? But then I used to wonder, particularly as a, you know, my previous profession, as you know, I'm an electrical engineer. Um, so I used to wonder, how does that work in an actual scene for the acoustics, right? Jesus on top of the mountain, everybody is sitting below, and Jesus is screaming out loud, and, and you know, the sound waves don't travel this way, it travels like this. So that's why, for example, in this sanctuary, we think, oh, okay, the best acoustics, maybe we will put Duane and Jeremy all the way to the top, and then we, we can hear from here. That's not how the sound waves work. And if you go to a gallery, like in a lecture hall, in any university, the professor doesn't stand on the top. He stands on the bottom. He stands on the valley. Because that's the best way for the sound wave to go up and I mean, I, I assume that Jesus, had, Jesus knew the basic foundational physics, right? That would have been a wrong choice 
for him to go up on the top of the mountain and talk to all this multitude. It should have been the other way. That's my opinion, okay? Jesus should have stood on the valley, and the Greeks used to do that. The Romans used to do that. Amphitheater, right? The amphitheaters are, are created exactly like the gallery hall in a university today. The audience sit in the, in the row in the gallery, and the professor who will lecture sit or stand or, you know, in the front. That's the way it should have been. But Sermon on the Mount, at least our depiction kind of, you know, kind of twisted. You know, it's kind of upside down. So that's when I read the first two verses one more time. I'm going to read it in my, <laughs> my voice, which cannot even be compared to Michael's, but I'm going to argue that this was closest to, Jesus had an accent too, right? You know, this is closest to Jesus. He's from Middle East, by the way. <laughs> He's not from Hollywood, by the way. So anyway. <laughs> well, Jesus didn't say this. This is the opening verses, so that's all I'm going to read today. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, 1 and 2. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Did you pick up anything from that? I'm going to read it one more time. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down... Who came to him? Oh, I thought it was the crowd. It was the, yeah, exactly. It was his disciples that came to him. It was not the crowd that came to Jesus. It was the disciples that came to Jesus. I strongly believe that the Sermon on the Mount was completely opposite to what we see in the movies. It was an extremely private conversation meant only for the disciples of Jesus. Because without that lens, none of what we read in the Sermon on the Mount make any sense. See, many people often quote the Sermon on the Mount. Politicians do that. Movie stars do that. Everybody say, oh, if we live according to the Sermon on the Mount, the world will be a better place. Really? I'm a pastor. I can't live according to the Sermon on the Mount. It says things like bizarre, bizarre things like if you call somebody a fool, you have committed murder, murder. And there is no if and but about it. And if you look upon a, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, he has all, you have already committed adultery with her. There are so many verses in the Bible, in the Sermon on the Mount, which, which is not just uh, difficult, it is, it is impossible. It is impractical. It is very nice of me to say that, oh yeah, let's all follow the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount can be followed only when you are at the very center of your calling as a disciple. Only when Jesus lives in you, only Jesus can accomplish what is written on the Sermon on the Mount. That is not for politicians, that is not for movie stars, that is not even for regular Christians. It is for the disciples and disciples only, otherwise the Sermon on the Mount doesn't make any sense. So, he saw the crowd, or multitude in other version, and he decided that I have nothing to say to them. He was not addressing the crowd. He was avoiding the crowd. 
at that seed. Well, that's exactly what we read. I will read it one more time. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples, his disciples, his disciples came to him. Then he said the following things. Rest of it. See, it is good to have a crowd around you. And there was a big crowd following Jesus. Multitude following Jesus. A new rabbi in town. Excellent teacher. Very meek. Not like the John the Baptist shouting at you and screaming at you. But John, you know, Jesus is such a meek. What a great preacher. And he can turn water into wine. And who wouldn't want to follow a rabbi who does that kind of stuff? Right? And, you know, with five loaves of bread, 5,000 people fed, and all this amazing miracle, the crowd wanted to follow Jesus. He was a sensational leader. Because what they could get out of him. But then also there were some in the crowd, they, they were also critics. And the Bible says that, like, you know, some people followed him just to catch him at his words. And I get all these crowds, that's what I'm saying. You know, quite often as a preacher, people tend to kind of follow you. And that's part of American culture, the celebrity preaching culture. When you go to different places and we say, hey, Pastor Matthew, what is your Twitter feed? We want to follow you. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't, what is Twitter? That's my question, right? Like, you know, I don't, I say, don't follow me because half of the time I don't know where I'm going. So if you follow, but that's... <laughs> Not as the pastor of the senior pastor of the Lake Avenue Church, but as a preacher when I go in the pulpit. And half of the time, sometimes I don't know where I'm going to go. It is, it is, it is quite true in, in so many ways. And the point is, very often we have created this culture of followers, crowd, multitude, how many followers you have. That's what determines your value. But Jesus didn't look at the crowd. And he decided, because this, the, the crowd was also a deterrent in his ministry. You know, there was a man named Zacchaeus. You know, you know his story, right? Zacchaeus, whichever way you want to, Zach, to be easy. You know, <laughs> Zach wanted to follow Jesus. And he was short. He couldn't see Jesus, not because Jesus was also short, because of the crowd. The crowd was gathering around him because of his height problem. He had to jump on a tree. Then there was another blind man. He wanted to be, he wanted healing for his eyes and, and he was crying out, son of man, help me, son of God, help me. And then the crowd went and rebuked him. Don't make noise here. We are listening to an interesting lecture. Then there was another instant, there was this lady who has been bothered by a problem of the blood and it's not exactly clear, but then she wanted to touch Jesus, at least the garment, the, 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 the tassel of his tunic, just to touch it. She was trying to reach out. The crowd was blocking her. See, these crowds are not really a good thing. I'm not against crowds. And we have a 4,000 member, 4,000 seating capacity sanctuary and we value the crowd. But it is not about the crowd. The crowd or the followers have to become disciples at some point. Unless and until they don't deserve to even hear what is coming out of the very heart of Jesus. So, what Jesus does there, in my humble opinion, is 
doing a test. I will call it a test of discipleship. He saw the crowd, these multitudes hanging out around them, and he wanted to isolate his disciples from the crowd. He wanted to know who are really worthy to hear my teaching. So he did a test. He said, let's climb the mountain. Let's climb the mountain. He climbed the mountain. He went onto the mountaintop. Now, one thing I know about crowd, they don't want to climb mountains. <laughs> they just like to float in the valley. <laughs> Climbing mountain is not very easy. And the crowds always wanted to be in the level. I don't know how many of you have uh, actually driven a stick shift car Stick shift, right? Like manual gear. Yes. <laughs> I'm from India. Almost all the cars we used to drive back in the days were stick shift. And when you stick, you, you have a stick shift. My, my dad had a bus. Actually, it was like a tour bus. And that bus, I would, you know, as a kind of a teenager, we would drive that bus. And especially when it goes up to the hilltop, you have to, the stick shift, you had to put it into the first gear. When you put it in the first gear, my goodness, the whole bus will shake. And the engine, you know, the revving the engine. Mm, 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 mm. And, and it's just quite a spectacle going on the first gear all the way to the mountaintop. But what is easy, though, when you come down, you put the neutral gear. You know, you put it in neutral. You don't have to do anything. You don't even want to switch on the engine, and you come back neutral, right? You can differentiate between the disciples and the crowd by which gear they are using. The disciples are almost always on the first gear. They are always climbing something. They are going to the mountaintop experiences. But the crowd always like to be neutral. They just follow wherever the wind <laughs> chases them. They just follow the trend. They just follow the culture. Right? But the disciples have to climb the mountain. I believe what Jesus did there was a test of discipleship. If a disciple is a follower who climbs the mountain with Jesus. I'll say that one more time. A disciple is a follower who will climb the mountain with Jesus. Now there are, I don't have a lot of time, but I just wanted to remind you there are there are different mountains in Jesus' life, right? Quite often, uh, you know, it's almost a repeated phrase, particularly in, the, in Luke's gospel, that Jesus withdrew himself to a mountain. Jesus went to a mountain to pray. And most often, it was this, uh, it was this retreat center, in a way, on mountaintop, to go and pray. But there are three specific mountains. I just wanted to, I'm not going to read any verses, and you know this. I just want to remind you of three specific mountains we need to climb with Jesus. First of all, the mountain of teaching. This is that mountain. The Sermon on the Mount, that is ultimately, it is the mountain of teaching. The crowd and the multitude come to a service, and they sit here, and they enjoy the show, and then they go back. And the disciple come here and they say, the pastor Matthew or whoever pastor says something, I want to understand this. I want to delve into this. I want to, I want to know what this really means. And they go deeper, deeper, deeper into this. That's the way you climb the mountain of teaching with Jesus. 
And even the Sermon on the Mount ends with the very famous parable of the wise man who built his house on the rock. And this is what Jesus said about the wise man. Whoever listens to my words and acts on them, acts on them, and they will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And I want you to know that climbing the mountain of teaching means not only studying the scripture, not only going in commentaries and you know, doing exegetical studies, these are all good, but we should act on them. The scripture is the only framework we have to understand the culture. Unfortunately, we do just the opposite. We use culture as a framework to understand scripture. That's the way we, often, we are often taught, taught in seminaries. But it's just the other way around. God has given us the scripture to look at everything as a framework. It doesn't mean that everything is written in the scripture, but it gives a framework that, with which we can look at everything that is happening around us. Now that is how you climb the mountain of teaching. Now if you go further down, Matthew chapter 17, there is an incident where Jesus climbs another mountain which is quite uh, understood as Mount Tabor. And he took Peter, James, and John with, with him. And in, in, the, in, in front of their eyes, he transfigured. You remember that scene? The real Jesus showed up. <laughs> you know, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we see is well, obviously real Jesus. But the real Jesus shows up only in the book of Revelation. Many people think that, that Jesus is this nice, you know, in the fireside chat I said, Jesus is this nice hippie who kind of hang out, hangs out with the guitar and say, love everybody, all that. that. That's not just Jesus. That's only a side of him. The real Jesus shows up in the book of Revelation. And in Matthew chapter 17, you see a glimpse of the real Jesus. Jesus was in front of his disciples and he basically took out his human blazer just for a quick second. Then they saw what was under him. His face shone like the sun and his garment became white, like white light. And the spectacular scene of transfiguration that happened in Peter and James and John had this revelation of who true Jesus is, and it completely transformed who they are. Now, that's the mountain we need to climb once we climb the mountain of teaching. There has to be an encounter with Jesus in our life, the real Jesus. Studying the scripture is not good enough. Understanding the scripture is not good enough. Even doing the scripture is also not just enough. That can make you a very legalistic Christian. I follow all these commandments. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. No, at some point, we have to have an encounter with the real Jesus who transfigured in front of the disciples on Mount Tabor. And now that's the mountain that is going to radically alter your life. Your paradigm will change. Your understanding of Christianity will change. Your, the way you look at church will change once you have that encounter with Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. Now then, the third mountain, and you know this very well. 
the mountain of Calvary. Jesus carried our sins all by himself, went to the mountain and died for our sake. Now the very God who was sitting on the throne emptied himself, leaving everything behind and came to this world, carried the pain and the suffering of humanity to a mountain top. And then Jesus said, if anyone wished to follow me, let him take his cross and follow me. We don't have to carry Jesus' cross. We all have a custom-made cross, his or her cross. We all have our own crosses, and we carry that cross with the one who carried his cross to the mountaintop. And that is the call to the mountain of suffering. I want you to know that the true transformation from being a follower to a disciple will happen only in the crucible of pain and suffering. I wish there was any other way. If there was any other way, Jesus himself would not have suffered his cross. There is no other way God himself could find. So here is the ultimate calling for us to climb the mountain of suffering with him. And while we carry that cross, our cross with him, and that's when we identify with the, with the ultimate symbol of shame and suffering and death in a way. And that is the beauty of Christianity, the very God, a God who understands and appreciates our suffering, a God who is with us in our suffering. That is the call to become a disciple. disciple. And I urge you, my brothers and sisters, and we are, as we are going to go to each of these Beatitudes starting next week, and I want you to prepare yourself. Ask this question, am I even worthy to hear a Beatitude? Am I still in my neutral gear, floating in the valley with Jesus? Or am I ready to put that into first gear and start climbing this mountain? If not, you're not going to get anything out of the series. Because this series is not meant for the crowd. This series is not meant for the multitude. This is for the disciples and the disciples only. And I, I encourage you to climb those mountains with Jesus. I have only climbed one mountain in my entire life. <laughs> that is the Echo Mountain right here. <laughs> That's not even a mountain. <laughs> I climbed it multiple times, actually. I went to, somebody dropped us off at Mount Wilson, then we walked all the way down. That won't count. Uh, but I just want to have an experience. But I'll tell you, I encourage you at least to climb the Echo Mountain. One thing really transformed me the day I first climbed the Echo Mountain. When I went there and I looked down on the Pasadena, I had a completely different perspective about everything I had. You know, sometimes I'm, you know, I'm a human being. I think about, oh my goodness, I need a better car. 
I need a big house. I need a backyard. Only three bedrooms, just a backyard. These are the things that go through your mind. Then you see this amazing, you know, I, have to, I live in San Gabriel and drive all the way. I have, to, I have to drive through San Marino. There is no other way I can drive, right? And I see all these beautiful buildings, beautiful houses, and say, my goodness, you know, if, if only I had a small house. Just, uh, just looks like their guest house. That's all I need. You know, these are the kind of things that uh, go through your mind. But that day, the Eka Mountain Day changed everything. I looked down, and I couldn't see any of this. All your big mansions you have built looked like a matchbox to me. And this big 210 highway was just like a little snake, and, the, and, the, and your fancy cars you drive, <laughs> it looked like the little ants crawling. It meant nothing to me, because I have a different perspective. I couldn't see any color. I couldn't see blue. I couldn't see red. It was all in a fog or the most beautiful, majestic creation of God. Pasadena itself, your JPL, Caltech, meant nothing to me at that point because I have a mountaintop experience. I had a different perspective about life and how to conduct my life. Now, that is the reward if you climb the mountain with Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. I'm going to say a prayer. After that, we will have communion. Father God, thank you for this call. As difficult as it sounds, there is nothing more joyful than climbing a mountain with your son, Jesus Christ because he has already been there. We are not following some pastors. We are not following some books, or there are no blind guides here. Your son has already climbed the mountain of teaching, the mountain of transfiguration, and now the mountain of suffering. Lord, as we are going to partake from the communion in a few seconds, Lord, we pray that you cleanse our souls, you purify our hearts, so that this won't be another ritual, this won't be another performance, but this will be walking with the Son of God to the mountain of suffering. Lead us to that mountain. Lead us to your cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.